the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Well, it's always a delight on a Friday when I wake up knowing I get to talk with one of my favorite people, Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Such a big week, Pete, hitting so many of the themes you uh, you focus on. How are you? Did you make it through <laughs> Yeah, I was just telling uh, Bill on the other line, it's been, uh, I think I've been home three days in the last uh, two weeks. So it's great to be home on a Friday and, and always great to conclude the week with you. Thanks, Pete. You're very kind. Uh, you guys have an event coming up with Glenn Lowry. Did I read that right? That's right. Tell Tomorrow me about that. I'll, I'll exactly. tell you about Glenn. You tell me about Glenn. Tell me about the event. The guy is a hero to me intellectually, oh. and I think anyone who's unfamiliar with his work ought to, ought to Google him and tweet, tweet. Tweet, uh, follow him on Twitter, but you tell us what you're doing with uh, Glenn. Yeah, it's actually our first public on-campus event in about 15 months. So uh, we have a Dean's Lecture Series here uh, where we bring in, have brought in some great speakers over the years, uh, including Neil Ferguson. We had Dennis Prager here. Uh, We actually had uh, U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos uh, here right before the pandemic hit. And uh, tomorrow night here on campus, we're welcoming uh, Dr. Glenn Lowry from Brown University, who I agree with you, I think is one of America's foremost public intellectuals and also a a great uh, economist in his own right. Interesting uh, background and biography. Uh, yeah. His life is one that did not follow a, a very straight trajectory, making him, I think, all the more interesting, uh, all the more interesting, uh, especially when he ended up in the right place, <laughs> which is good. Oh, no, that's right. Right. You know, that's he right. had he had a, he had a lot of struggles in his life, but he became uh, one of the premier um economists you're right in this country uh and was seen as so disappeared for a while and now he's back and back with uh, a ferocious vengeance that the times require the some of the stuff he does on podcast with john mcwhorter yeah. talking about critical race theory and black lives matter yeah it's uh it's a, it's a level of depth sophistication and truth that uh only someone uh, of glenn stature can deliver i can't you can I, I don't mean you can't but you know what i mean right pete oh absolutely no i i think he is as i said um one of america's great public intellectuals uh particularly for this time and for the reasons that you say his his speaking on issues of race uh obviously coming from the position as as someone who's not only uh, black, but also a nationally renowned economist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that some of these issues around uh, so-called inequities or equity, he can speak directly. Mm-hmm. He was one of the founders of the concept of social capital mm-hmm. and how social capital uh, redounds to those that are coming out of flourishing communities and how there can be a mix of some, dare I say, uh, systemic elements, but really there's much more to do with 
personal life choices and um, and decisions that one makes uh, about uh, the course of their life and their own personal agency. And as you say, he comes from a very unique place in that his own life story really as someone who uh, didn't get his Ph.D. until later in life, um, you know, in some ways is a little bit of a Tom Sowell figure mm-hmm. as well, you mm-hmm. know, somebody who not only came to academia a little bit later in life, but also somebody who started on the left and made that migration as the evidence presented itself is, uh, again, somebody who's just perfect for this point in time. So important. This is part of your Distinguished Lecture Series, uh, Pete. Uh, is that an annual event or is it more than once a year? It's Yeah, it's once a semester, so Great. twice a year. Okay. Yeah, and obviously we've had to table it for the last... Uh, for the last 14 months, but just so excited uh, to, as things are slowly, I mean, we're going to be socially distanced. It's going to be a a moderated crowd size in our Elkins Auditorium here on the Malibu campus. Uh, But all that being said, we have a live stream up, and, and, uh, and, and these are videos that uh, tend to garner hundreds of thousands of views. So we're very excited to have him here. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, here's a little conservative history for you you may not know. Uh, it's apropos not a lot, but it's kind of fun. Um, in 19, I want to say 86, uh, Glenn Lowry was slated to become a deputy secretary of education under William mm. Bennett. And he got into some trouble and couldn't take the appointment who replaced him as the deputy secretary of education answer gary bauer oh my goodness (laughs) there's a little history for you there little little 1980s inside conservative history (laughs) wow my goodness glenn's been around for a long time you've got clarence thomas in one of the other agencies as well i mean there were some real oh that's right he was heading equal opportunity absolutely that's right oh absolutely yes. dinesh d'souza was in the white house uh domestic oh policy God. office it was yeah. a it was a different mark levin was a department of justice yeah, <laughs> I didn't want, was, was, i'm getting a little wistful here <laughs> we've got half of the salem uh, yeah 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 exactly right exactly right <laughs> Exactly right. Reagan, the, the Reagan, uh, what, what would you call it? The Reagan exodus, the Reagan diaspora on Salem media. Yeah, the Reagan <laughs> diaspora at Salem. Uh, Pete, uh, there's a bunch in the news this week that yeah. also um, hits a lot of the things you focus and work on. Uh, you led me to this piece that led me to an interview with the author of it, Thomas Frank. He had a piece in yeah. The Guardian that I thought was – after I read it, and thanks again for the hat tip in reading it, I got to tell you, I think it's the piece to beat. It was one of the most um, self-introspective, self-reflecting, honest, yeah. liberal accountings I have seen in the hysteria over and the censorship over things having to do with the coronavirus. I, I thought it was a remarkable piece. I, I thought it was, too, Frank, obviously, as a man of the left, um, but he senses when his side of the aisle, and certainly the institutions that make up his side of the aisle, namely the media, um, have uh, demonstrated some significant overreach. And, um, you know, his recounting kind of bit by bit of of the accusations, particularly around the origins of the 
coronavirus and, and what was said at the time when some of those suppositions were raised um, is, uh, is now well known to be information that was uh, intentionally meant to um, attack the administration and to see it as xenophobic and just put in as another wedge uh, against the president, um, all frankly to the loss of, of national security and what we might have known if we had been more aggressive in the early stages. Uh, I'm not saying that we know exactly where it came from, but we, at least we know this much, that the reflexive action by some in the administration and certainly by many in the media to say that there's no way, not only that there's no way this couldn't happen, but that by levying this charge, you are ipso facto racist or xenophobic. Um, extremely disturbing um, that that was allowed to happen. And I must say, as another piece that also references that piece, there's a, I just read something new by Matt Taibbi also on his Substack page, another man on the left, mm -hmm. which again, I think we're starting to see more and more yep, on the left. I do too. Uh, beginning to explore Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi. Yeah, I think I think we are too. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you why it's so darn chilling is people aren't connecting dots the way they should, and the way we didn't used to have to. Pete, tell me if you agree. Yeah. So today, and one doesn't have to be a supporter of Donald Trump to get this, because what I'm about to say, I think Thomas Frank would agree with. He's a Bernie Sanders supporter. But we we got into this a bit yesterday, and he was in total concurrence with me on, on, on this issue, thankfully. So you don't have to be a supporter of Trump, Donald Trump to appreciate what I'm about to say. When you see that Facebook banned for two years, Donald Trump from participating on Facebook, as they decided today – and then you saw the press secretary, Jen Psaki, asked about it. Her response is worth watching, Pete, if you haven't. It's worth playing. But she talks about the legitimacy of a private corporation here doing its part to crack down on disinformation mm. and false information. Those are her words, to crack down on mm. disinformation and false information. And it dawns on me that that's exactly what her side and the journalistic community was saying when they were condemning and criticizing theories about the origin of the Wuhan virus or the leak from the lab. That a year ago they could get away with and censor and put the quietus on, but now looks by most indications like actually the more likely story. Um, right. We don't know, but it, it's lots pointing there. I got to take a break. Can I pick up on that point and freedom of speech and thought when we come right back? Absolutely. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Pete Peterson of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Pete Peterson with us. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We're talking about a bunch of things, but Pete, this um, this point I was trying to make seems like Facebook and the administration, social media and the administration, I should say, are doubling down on the very thing that it seems has gotten that side in trouble uh, over the last, uh, the, I don't know, 72, 96 hours um, in, 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 in appreciating what it means to suppress 
thought, information, and investigation. That, that, that's what worries me. And it worries me when government officials start talking about allowable posts based on what's false and what's disinformation. It just it very much worries me. And that's well, a and tougher standard on the president that even the New York Times has for itself, to be honest. Yeah, but I, I think what's so disturbing about this is it, it's one thing, and there's another great piece in, a, in Vanity Fair, of all places. I started that, it. It's long. <laughs> I, but, I mean, I think it's one of the the best reported yeah. mm-hmm. uh, backgrounds mm-hmm. on we can't call it a cover-up yet because we certainly don't right. know uh, the, the origins of the virus. But going into the State Department, um, people that were raising alarm bells and being told in the State Department, quote, not to open that Pandora's box. Right. Um, you know, it's one thing if a, a theory is raised about something and it's critiqued on its merits. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, that theory is dismissed. It's another thing when a theory is raised and the person who raises it is attacked. And that really has so much to do with the public opinion that was formed by the media in attacking those who had raised even these questions um, around the origins of the virus, which in the grand scheme of things has to be the most important news story of the last half century. Has to be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, But you know what's interesting about this? Ironies of history, in a way, Pete, I'd love your thought on this if you think there's any validity to it. You think about what China um, and Wuhan have come to you know, mean to us over the last two years, a year and a half. And you have a um, communist country, which is not a criticism. That's what they call themselves in their own constitution. That You have a communist right. country that um, unleashed, volitionally or not, it just it was unleashed in a communist country, a, a, a disaster, a health disaster of um, tremendous consequence. And you have a part of this country, a large part, trying to do its best to help China apologize, to be apologists for China in helping to cover it up or to conceal it or to give China every benefit of the doubt, which is the exact opposite, the exact opposite of all our attitudes with Chernobyl in 1986, where Ronald Reagan would continually demand that the Soviet Union tell the truth about what happened there. It's a it's a it's a very very different odd time, isn't it? Back then, we gave a damn about the truth of a man-made disaster. Now we seem to want to cover it up. No, that's and again, this dynamic, which is something I don't think that we've we've seen before, in which those who are raising these questions uh, were being attacked as malevolent, racist xenophobic uh, without ever really addressing the merits of what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Vanity Fair piece, again, goes into some detail about some of the back and forth that was happening in the State Department where people were just being told to stop looking. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And of course, in this uh, piece by Matt Taibbi, the 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 so-called journalism where people were being attacked for bringing these questions into the public square, while while never really addressing uh, the facts that they actually did possess. There are things that we really do know, even at this point, that should merit further investigation. And then to see, I, we've talked about before, I have some family who live in Australia, and we are in very close contact, especially about the trade war, really the one-sided trade war, the tariffs that China continues to wage on Australian products, all because that's a country that is standing firm on asking questions regarding the origins of the virus, and they are paying a serious price. And so it takes courage. It shouldn't have to, but it now demands that uh, people display courage in in raising these questions. Almost in this whole story, we're talking to Pete Peterson, almost in this whole story, uh, Pete, uh, you have the you have in sharp relief the problem in general that we have with political rhetoric today where as you said if you were to examine or wanted to investigate the Wuhan virology lab you were to use your words denounced as a racist and you could never get to the merits of it it's exactly what happens in every other aspect of life now too when it comes to political rhetoric that is disagreeable to the progressive attitude at the moment, isn't it? You denounce someone as racist, then you thus get to and have achieved the shutting of them up. And you can never get to the merits of that which they want to talk about or which maybe needs to be talked about. Isn't that the strategy? You use a claim word like racist and you shut it down. This goes to the piece that Andrew Sullivan has on on his private page, too. And I, I, I just had to quote this one part of it because I just think it, it goes right to the point that you're making in criticizing critical race theory as as a as an attack on classical liberal right. uh, principles of right. the Holy Ghost. This is what makes CRT different. Right. When it began, critical theory was just one school of thought among many, but the logic of it, it denies the core liberal premises of all the other schools and renders them all forms of oppression means that it cannot long tolerate those other schools. It must always attack them. And this, again, goes to, frankly, some of the things that we were seeing about the raising of the origins of uh, coronavirus. It (laughs) It wasn't just that people were raising some wacky conspiracy theory. It's if you raise it, you are a racist and a xenophobe. You know, Pete, I've got to uh, start a service with you, and maybe we can talk to our mutual friend at Salem, where I need um, you to find all the interesting articles that you stumble upon and distribute them and send them out. Because I would, I, I've everything you've just said, I read because you told me to. That Andrew Sullivan piece is so important. Um, I want to go to the next point he makes in that essay with you on the other side. Because yep. uh, that gets us into what the real crime of CRT is. I'm Seth Leibson. Can I say my name? <laughs> you want to try it, Pete? I'm Seth Leibson. He's Pete Peterson. And we'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Pete Peterson with us. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Pete, this wonderful piece you sent me uh, by Andrew Sullivan on describing critical race theory, he goes on from the point you make to say something that, to me, is the essence of where we live right now. He says critical race theory um, throws out its competitors by ending debate by insisting that the liberal reasonable person standard of debate is in fact rigged in favor of the oppressor such that speech is a form of harm, even violent harm, rather than a way to seek the truth. It insists that what matters is the identity of the participants in a debate, not the arguments themselves. If a cis white woman were to make an argument, a Latino trans man can dismiss it for no other reason than that a white cis woman is making it. Thus, identity trumps reason, and thus liberal society dies every time that dismissal sticks. That's beautifully brilliant and true, isn't it? And again, the the identity trumps reason. Um, If there's a phrase that we we have to keep reminding ourselves of as we see... uh, people being torn down and arguments being dismissed only because of the person making them. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, this is what, back to the first part of our conversation, this is what makes a Glenn Lowry uh, such a difficult person to to put in the CRT box, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, given not only the fact that he's a a brilliant economist and and black, but at the same time... um, he has been on the left side of the aisle and made that transition again in many ways like uh Thomas Sowell did moving from marxism uh working in the federal government and seeing that as uh, the not only the wastefulness but just this expert driven decision making that that proved itself to be fallible um yeah this this is really what cuts at the root of liberalism right that we we stand and fall based on the merits of our arguments, right? There we bring in Martin Luther King again. <laughs> you know, well, that's again, right. That's you know. right. But that, that – that, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, but about the content of our character and uh, the color of our skin. I mean, this, this inverts that uh, utterly and completely. But all liberalism and, is inverted now, I have to say, I think, mm, because mm. this notion – I mean, I, I always thought liberalism – at best understood the appreciation for freedoms of speech and religion because it was, as Judge Learned Hand once put it, the sentiment that it wasn't too sure that it was right. Liberalism is based on doubt, self-doubt, argument, experiment, right? And all of that is now gone. In fact, it's been chased away, as Andrew puts it, hasn't it? You can't investigate anymore. That itself, in some areas of CRT training, is a form of whiteness, the use of reason itself. It's not yeah. a value the left has. Right, and, and entire, the entire set of what white, we might call bourgeois values yeah, are right. just seen right. as, as whiteness, That's whether it. they're practiced by those who are black or white. Yeah, I can name <laughs> a lot, an awful lot of whites that I don't think deploy reason very well. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, and so this 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 larger point then is where where you left if you are someone who is black or latino and you don't you don't line up where uh 
many of these folks on the critical race theory left are. Uh, you have to attack them, right? I think about Larry Elder's um, documentary, Uncle Tom. Yes, that's right. Right? That's you just, right. you know, there's, there's, there's has to be, it allows, it brokers no dissent. And again, that's, these are the points that you're making and the ones that are being made by folks like Sullivan and Taibbi and, and Frank is that if, if we're not able to reasonably discuss with one another the merits of an argument without having to bring in who my ancestors were as somehow influencing my position on something, uh, we, we've essentially gutted the ability to deliberate, which is at the core of what created this country and, and what can only sustain it. I agree with you, and that's beautifully stated. I stumbled on something as you were talking, and I was thinking, Pete, about what you were saying, and I wonder if this doesn't sum up some of this, and I know I have to let you go in a minute here. But the fact that Glenn Lowry and I have more in common than I do with Chuck Schumer, Mm. to me, is a beautiful thing. To the left, it's an awful thing, and that, to me, is everything. No, that's right. And again, it goes to that when it when it becomes about identity, I think it's very important to understand that it's it's highly ideological in that way too. Mm-hmm. It's not just about identity. It's about identity tied to a particular political ideology. And if you stand athwart or stand on the outside of that con- of that connection, of that nexus, if you are Glenn Lowry or a Coleman Hughes or a Tim Scott mm-hmm. or, you know, we could keep going. Yeah, Candace, Larry, yeah, you bet. We're, we're getting a nice catalog, actually, but you bet. Mm-hmm. I mean, then they have to be attacked yep. for not being <laughs> supposedly of their race. That's right. They have to be disappeared. Yeah. They have to be yeah, gulagged. Yeah. Yeah. And again, if we're not able to deal with arguments on their merits, um, then it's all lost. It's all lost, and it's just a power grab of race and the triumph of the will with the strongest race. And we can go back to, uh, oh, I don't know, the way we were 10,000 years ago, as if we've learned nothing, I suppose. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, there's no way to get to e pluribus unum in that. We just might as well cash in the national model. Exactly right. At that point, because as you say... Uh, when we can say to ourselves, I am much closer to a, a Glenn Lowry than I am to, you know, Chuck Schumer, Jerry Nadler or something like that. Yeah. yeah but yeah. when we start to see that we're actually closer with Thomas Frank, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And with Matt Taibbi <laughs> yeah. and with Glenn Greenwald. No, no, no. Here's the optimism note. And I got to let you go on this. They're closer yeah. to us. We're going to get them. They're going to be coming yeah. to our set. <laughs> very good. I love very you, good. Pete Peterson. Very You're great. Good. Great to be with you, Seth. Have a beautiful weekend. We'll talk to you soon. You too. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. If you're tired of those high utility bills and thinking about going solar, I want you to check out my friend Solar Sandy, who sponsors portions of this show. She's the woman who brought Integrity back 
to solar in Arizona. And she has actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. When you go solar, it's important you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy is the right way. She has the formula. And if you sign up now, she will pay your solar panel payments for one year and your power bills for one year, and you will receive a $1,000 bonus at signing. That's right, a $1,000 bonus and no solar panel or power bill payments for one year. She'll do appointments in person or by Zoom. Go to AskSolarSandy.com, AskSolarSandy.com, or give her a call at 623-850-8229 and tell her I sent you. Our friends at Issues and Insights write that Anthony Fauci is starting to look a lot more like the person former President Donald Trump described, the king of flip-flops who got a lot wrong, self-promoter, disaster. Of course, the press had long ago decided that Fauci was a national treasure, and just as it treated the lab leak theory as a Trump-fueled conspiracy, it called Trump's criticisms of Fauci idiotic. But Fauci's lies and misinformation are starting to pile up. Calls are mounting for him to be fired. Was he also involved in a cover-up? Let's review. Fauci has already admitted that he'd lied to the public about masks and vaccinations. He told the street last June he downplayed the use of masks because he was worried about shortages, but an email shows that he believed them to be ineffective. The typical mask you buy in a drugstore is not really effective in keeping out the virus, which is small enough to pass through material, quote, close quote, he wrote later. However, he insisted on wearing a mask even though he was fully vaccinated, telling a Senate hearing that, quote, let me just state for the record that masks are not theater, masks are protective, close quote. Senator Rand Paul confronted Fauci, saying, if you have immunity, they are theater. If you already have immunity, you're wearing a mask to give comfort to others. Fauci responded, I totally disagree with you. Then Fauci admitted on Good Morning America that it was political theater. He wore a mask, he said, on the news program only because, quote, he didn't want to look like I was giving mixed signals. But being a fully vaccinated person, the chances of my getting infected in an indoor setting is extremely low. Close quote. He lied to Rand Paul. On vac- under oath. On vaccinations, Fauci told the New York Times that he'd knowingly downplayed the share of people who needed to be vaccinated to reach herd immunity because he didn't think the country was, quote, ready to hear what he really thinks, close quote. But Fauci's emails reveal deception and a duplicitousness that are far more troubling. In May 2020, Fauci insisted to the public that there was no reason to think that the coronavirus originated in a lab in Wuhan. The scientific, he said, quote, is very, very strongly leaning towards this could not have been deliberately manipulated. Everything about the evolution over time strongly indicates that this virus evolved in nature and then jumped species, close quote. But that wasn't exactly the case. One email to Fauci was from the director of the Scripps Research Institute, who told Fauci that, quote, after discussions earlier today, mentioning a series of names, we all find the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory and Features look engineered. Those same scientists published a paper in Nature magazine discounting the lab theory, but admitted, quote, that more scientific data could swing the balance of evidence to favor one hypothesis over another, close quote. Fauci's attacks on that theory may not have been entirely honest, but they did please Peter Tazak, head of EcoHealth Alliance. One of the newly uncovered emails shows 
Dazak praising Fauci for downplaying the lab leak theory. Quote, I just wanted to say a personal thank you on behalf of our staff and collaborators for publicly standing up and stating that the scientific evidence supports a natural origin for COVID-19. Close quote. Why does Dazak matter? Because his group has funneled $600,000 in National Institutes of Health grant money to the Wuhan lab in question, which may have used the funds to engineer what later became the pandemic-causing virus. Dasek was also one of the experts sent by the WHO to Wuhan to investigate the virus's origins and came back saying, no way was it man-made. The issue of the NIH funding questionable Chinese research came up in a Senate hearing this spring, and Rand Paul pressed Fauci about that gain-of-function research. Two weeks after Fauci denied that there was any funding, he admitted to another senator that the funds could have been used for gain-of-function research. Why we listen to anything this man has to say anymore is beyond me. Beyond me. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your week with us. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. If you didn't get on, please do call us again Monday. We'll get right to you if you let us know that you were uh, still uh, hanging there for uh, air on Friday. I um, We went through a lot this week, and, and we do think about those lily pads that we jump or are forced to jump from, as Wilfred McClay put it. Which is why, a word I haven't used here in a long time, but a word that's super important to me, and I think really, if anything about this show, has a thesis to it. It's the notion of durability, the durables. The lily pads are not important. Souls are important. Durable things are important. And that's why we take history seriously. It's why we take this country seriously. And it's why we take the history of this country seriously and why we take these words from Ronald Reagan 37 years ago this weekend seriously. Forty summers have passed since the battle that you fought here. You were young the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? Well, what impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? What inspired all the men of the armies that met here? We look at you and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. The men of Normandy had faith that what they were doing was right Faith that they fought for all humanity. Faith that a just God would grant them mercy on this beachhead or on the next. It was the deep knowledge, and pray God we have not lost it, that there is a profound moral difference between the use of force for liberation and the use of force for conquest. You were here to liberate, not to conquer, and so you and those others did not doubt your cause. And you were right not to doubt. You all knew that some things are worth dying for. One's country is worth dying for. 
And democracy is worth dying for because it's the most deeply honorable form of government ever devised by man. All of you loved liberty. All of you were willing to fight tyranny. And you knew the people of your countries were behind you.